Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, this is the first episode that I've recorded face-to-face in real life with someone for 15 weeks. And I really couldn't have asked for a better guest. For those of you who know Jenny Field or have heard her speak, you'll know she is smart, perceptive and articulate. In my experience, the conversation with Jenny is always as entertaining as it is informative. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about Jenny's role as this year's president of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. What is it like leading the CIPR amid a global pandemic? Jenny reflects on her 16 plus years experience in communications and we discuss how business, leadership and comms need to adapt in the light of current circumstances. We talk about moving organisations from chaos to calm. The topic of Jenny's first book, which is due out next year, and also the mission of her agency, which is called Redefining Communications. Now, as you'll hear, listeners, we both get a little overly excited by the prospect of an in-person conversation about work after living so long in Zoom land. As Jenny says, we're almost giddy with excitement. I hope you'll forgive and understand our giggles and general jubilation. So with that apology up front, here is Jenny Field. So Jenny, how wonderful to have you, not in the studio, but at a safe distance in my home. (laughs) It's the first conversation that I've had face-to-face about work, I think. Yeah, mine too. In a good 10, 11 weeks, definitely. So you and I might get a little bit kind of like... (laughs) A bit giddy. A bit giddy with excitement (laughs) on this podcast, but I think people are going to forgive us. (laughs) I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah, just skip over this one, everyone, if you just think there's too much giggling and these people are enjoying themselves a bit too much. They're like they've been let out of jail or something. The first and most obvious question, Jenny, is what's it like being president of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations amid a global pandemic? I mean, it's very different to what I thought I was going to be doing this year. But it's also been really interesting to be part of so many conversations that I would never have been part of. So for my own learning, that's been fascinating. It's tainted with disappointment for me because so much of what I wanted to do was get out and meet more members, meet more volunteers and spend time with the membership. Having 10,000 members you know, around the world, that was such a big thing that I wanted to do more of. And I'm just not going to get the chance to do it this year. And and that's probably the biggest disappointment I have. Not that I don't get to wear the nice ball gowns at all the awards <laughs> events, um, but that I'm just not going to get to have the conversations that I wanted to have. So I'm just trying to make myself more accessible online and, and attend more things. But it's, it's not the same as being there and talking to people. But that said, the the global pandemic brings with it huge opportunity for us as an institute and huge opportunity for our profession. And I think having some really good conversations about what needs to change, what we need to focus on, how we need to adapt, what's really important. You know, it's, a, it's an opportunity to really look at stuff very differently, like any organisation, where you may have been stuck for a long time saying, oh, we've just always done it like this, so let's just carry on, whereas that excuse isn't there anymore. So there's lots of really great conversations happening, and it's a real privilege to be part of that. We, we were chatting earlier before we went on air about the role that communicators and PR professionals have to play at the moment. I, I watched one of your regular videos that you've been doing and you talked about the importance of uh, our role really in keeping people safe is making sure the message is clear, is mm-hmm. understood. How have the how have communicators been responding in this pandemic would you say it's it's a great conversation and one that I'm having you know a lot 
of late, especially around response, also around impact. But the response is really interesting because you're right. We do have a role to play when it comes to messaging, making sure that people are informed at the right time, in the right way, that they have an opportunity to feed back and, and all the things that we've talked about a lot. But one of the things I think that's also coming up is the volume of information and the misinformation. And I know that I'm that annoying person on a family WhatsApp group that's challenging every data point that's coming through from from someone or, you know, I'll see a picture on Facebook shared by somebody and I'll comment, say, this isn't what you think it is. It's actually this. So I feel quite a duty to do that. And I think a lot of us feel that now in the profession to really stand up for the right information. So yes, definitely about that, getting the messages out, making sure people know what what to do and that that's clear, but also making sure that we're monitoring that volume and that noise because there's so much information now that we're in that, you know, attention has to go somewhere if there's too much information. So the balance is just a little bit off, I think. I'm going to ask you a slightly controversial question and, and I absolutely understand as president of the CRPR and it's 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 not a question I'd plan to ask you, but there has been, I think it's a fair amount of criticism, let's put it that way, of the government's messaging. Yeah. Can the CIPR, can a body like the CIPR have a view on that? So I don't think it can. And, no. you know, personally, from my perspective, I was... I was quite disappointed at the way our industry responded to that messaging in some ways. So there will be people that will be working on that message, people working very hard to advise. And we were very quick to criticise without maybe knowing the full story. And that just didn't sit well for me in terms of, you know, all of the work I'd seen at the beginning of the pandemic of everyone rallying together, supporting each other, you know, being there for each other. It seemed to go really the other way. And I, I sort of bowed out of that debate because also... It's really difficult, I think, when the messaging gets more complicated to be very simple. And mm. I've read so much around the science of fear and human behaviour. And it just it, it's impossible to give a very clear message, I think, when there's so much ambiguity and, and so much involved. So I saw a really good sign that was sort of taking the mickey a little bit out of everyone's fury at the government messaging, which is those motorway signs that say, take a break. And there's somebody had annotated it saying, well, how long for and where should it be? And, <laughs> and I thought this is almost exactly this, exactly what we're doing because we need that um, certainty at the moment because of the ambiguity and the fear and everything else. So CIPR doesn't have a view, but mm. personally, I, I think... It could always be better, but I'd rather comment when I know the facts and, and who was involved and how it came to be. Let's hope that when all of this gets back to something, I, I'm going to I'm trying to resist the phrase <laughs> the new normal, and I've just said it. But we can have someone on the podcast that explains what it was actually like to be in the eye yeah. of the storm. Yeah, and I that's the, those are the people I want to talk to. You know, those people that were, you know, part of it, part of the conversation, frustrated by it, perhaps, you know, ignored, maybe we've all been there, not even not in a pandemic, yes. where you're giving advice and no one's listening to you. But there will, you know, that didn't come from nothing. And I think understanding that is where my interest lies is how did we get to this? Yes, <laughs> because that's the conversation I'd like to have. Just winding a little bit back to before the pandemic, you'd taken on this role as president of the CIPR. At that stage, before all this came along, did you have anything in particular that you were really keen to focus on? The volunteers is a big, big part for me. So we're a membership organisation with 10,000 individual members and we have a, around about probably nearly 300 volunteers that support the Institute. So it's a lot. And I've been a volunteer for six years. I started as a, a treasurer in a, one of our um, sector groups and they do so much, you know, and especially at the moment, they're doing so much to support members. And I wanted to have time to really bring them together. And I talk about kind of, you know, rallying the army and doing that, because actually, if we can mobilise all of our volunteers to come together, work closer together, it would be a really brilliant experience for our members, more so than some of them feel now. I, we were going to have our first volunteer conference at the end of March. That oh. was the first ever one we were going to have to bring them together to to do some learning and some sharing and some recognition. And that's had to be postponed, obviously. So 
that's the one thing of all the things that have been cancelled that for me is the one thing I am I'm most disappointed about but it's postponed you know even if it doesn't happen this year speaking to Mandy who's coming in as president in January we may do it in February next year and and it will happen because we both recognize that importance of bringing these people together that represent the institute so that's that's probably the only the only bit for me. You've had a lot of experience across all the comms disciplines but I think it's probably fair to say you're best known for your internal communications mm-hmm. expertise and experience. What does it say about our profession that you now head up the CIPR? <laughs> it brings joy to everyone in internal communications. When I um, when I stood, I had so many people in internal comms coming up and saying, "You've got to be the first president that's a specialist in, in internal comms." Um, and I think I, I think I probably am. There's a lot of presidents before me that are multidiscipline that do have a lot of experience in different ways, but. Uh, I think I think it's fair to say that I am best known for that. And I think as an institute, it's recognising the breadth of PR, which is something I've talked a lot about in that, you know, PR is not media relations. And, you know, if I do another interview where people are talking to me as the president about, you know, press releases and media campaigns, <laughs> I have to kind of correct them around, that's not really what I'm here to talk about. I've done that. I didn't really enjoy that. But for me, it's more than that. It's about the relationships. It's about um, how we manage reputation. It's just got so much breadth. So that's where I get quite excited because I think it's recognising the strategic management function of PR, the fact that it is not just media and that it's much broader than that. So I'm hoping that's what it signals. And uh, and I think there should be you know, more presidents that come through that have different specialisms and, and different areas of expertise, because I think it brings a different perspective to the team at CIPR, which I think is really valued. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? It's like <laughs> bringing a different perspective, but they tell me it is. <laughs> no, I thought it was interesting because you spoke at, it must have been CIPR Inside. Was that last October? Yes. Yeah, they changed the conversation. That's November, October time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you asked a question from the stage of the audience of how many people, and they were clearly speaking to 95% of them would be internal comms people, how many of them felt that they worked in PR? Yeah. And you had very few hands go up. And I think that's exactly right. It's because people think of of, of PR as as press releases and... Yeah. And, and giving a quote to the media. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's it hasn't got the best reputation when you look back at AbFab, you know, which I grew up watching. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a series out um, at the moment called Flack, which is more about the publicist side. But again, not shining the best light in, in that world. There's nobody going to do a, a, a documentary or something about internal comms, because I think it's something that people just don't see as that side of, of what PR is. But it's getting more attention. And I think that the pandemic, if nothing else, has made the conversation about messaging and engagement a topic of conversation for the whole population. And that's never happened before for us. And it's opened up the conversation about how organisations treat employees. Yes. And that's, you know, totally, totally different and never happened before as well. So I think that tide is turning. But there's been so much narrative in the internal comms industry around internal comms sitting with HR. And I was looking at some data from Gatehouse, the Gallagher company, of their state of the sector research over the years, because they ask where you sit. And I thought, I'm going to have a look at this and see whether there is any proof in this view that it has generally moved to HR or it should. And the majority are in corporate comms functions. So it's not the norm necessarily that you would sit in HR. Um, I think there has been a a bit of an increase, but it kind of comes and goes. Mm. But I think the more internal communicators can align with external communicators and we can close that gap, and you and I have talked about that a long a long time ago, um, is really important because it's about reputation and relationships and that goes to every stakeholder group that there is. Absolutely. I mean, we've had Stephen Waddington on, on, the, on the show. Exactly right. He talks about your many publics. Yes. You know, yeah. and you've got an internal public, an external one, yeah. some that sort of span both. So, yeah, yeah. that makes that perfect sense. So one of the things I'm very keen to ask you about is, and this is a selfish question because um, listeners might know I've just been elected to the International Executive Board of the IABC. And the question that I suppose that I'm asking myself in that position and the question, therefore, I'm asking you because you're going to know the answer <laughs> much more than me, is what role do membership bodies have in a world where we can get 
seemingly so much for free online in terms of, you know, training ideas, um, forums, whatever it is. What role does a membership body play in that world? Yeah, it's a question I've been asked my whole time as a volunteer for CIPR. So you're going to get loads of these now that you're a board member for IABC. Um, I, I always use the gym analogy when I talk about professional membership because you can join a gym and that is not going to make you fit and healthy. Okay, so you have an intention to be better, a better version of yourself if you're going to be joining a gym traditionally, because you might want to lose weight, build muscle, whatever it might be. So you're going with that intention and you have to put the work in in order to achieve the goal that you've set yourself. When you look at a professional membership body, for me, it's similar. You can't join a professional membership body and just expect to become a better communicator. <laughs> you have to put the work in to do that. And I think there are some people that will join because they want to be able to have um, just the link to it, to be able to say, oh, I'm a member of that body. You're therefore bound by a code of conduct. You're therefore bound by the ethics and everything that that stands for. You can be reported. You can go through a process there. So there is that which I quite like, that I'm held to account. But if we go back to the gym piece again, it's that you get out what you put in, which is yes. what so many people say. But as a professional membership body, for me, there is loads out there I could get for free. And when I joined six years ago, I was doing, I think I was doing internal comms then, and I'd done my media relations and other bits and bobs like that. And I joined and I remember walking into this room full of people that I'd never met in my life, range of ages, range of backgrounds, and really interested to have conversations, feeling hugely out of my depth, thinking I don't know any of this stuff. But it opened up a world for me of people that I could talk to that I would grow to trust and build relationships with that would be people that would help me in my career. So where I've identified I need some help with public affairs, sure, I can go and look on the internet and I can search stuff and I could do a diploma in it and I could read some books. But actually having a conversation with somebody around, okay, but I don't understand how this works and how yes. this fits with this and how do you lobby and how does that work is really helpful. And having access to those people, if for me, is what comes from being part of a professional body because I've made some of my best friends through the CIPR and it's all about networking, but it's about putting yourself in those positions to network and to find those people and to ask. And that's mm. what it's always been about for me is how can I help you? How can you help me? And how can we connect each other to other people? And the the CPD and the development that you get you have to have a plan to do that. So much like you'd have a plan at the gym, right. have a plan with your membership and how you want to develop. But also just think about how you can use the people around you and who you're going to meet, because that's the biggest benefit I have found. Because you've got mm. a common ground in, in being part of that membership. You clearly care about your profession, the standards. Um, you want to develop yourself. And therefore, you're going to be much more open to conversations and sharing. And that's that's what it's done for me. It's just opened huge numbers of doors. You said it was, it was eight years ago that you, you walked into that room feeling quite nervous, a little bit out of your depth. I think people would be fascinated to know, and this is probably a very difficult question, but was there, were there one or two things that you did then and right up till now that has resulted in you being where you are now? If people are thinking to themselves, wow, one day I'd like to be in Jenny's position. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just very opinionated, Jenny. <laughs> um, never, Jenny. Never. I know. I, I'm, I'm not afraid to have a conversation. And I think a lot of people that will know me will say, oh, she's you know, very confident, she's very outspoken. She's you know, not afraid to say what she thinks. When you walk into a room and you don't know anybody, no matter who you are, that's, that's daunting. But you you can find a way to have a little bit of a common ground or it's okay to be vulnerable. I think that's something I learned quite early on that if you don't know the way to get back to the tube from the meeting room, you're going to have to ask somebody <laughs> or you can stand on your phone and Google, but actually why not ask somebody? And I, I will always remember Cornelius Alexander being the first person I spoke to at my first CIPR meeting and he walked me to the tube and I'll never forget standing with him on, in London, you know, crossing the road and thinking, oh, I don't know who this is. And, um, you know, just so, so many different people you could meet. So there's definitely that. There is also, you have to be part of the solution. 
And I think that's the piece for me that if you feel passionately about something and you feel quite purpose driven by what you're doing, you have to be able to be part of the solution for that. So you can't just come in and shout at everybody and tell them they're all wrong and then walk away. You have to be prepared to roll your sleeves up, get in and and make that change. And I think that's probably the thing that I did the most when I was chair of CIPR Inside. We created our own little strategy. We had quite a clear sense of what we were going to do under that. And that that group grew, you know, not only in terms of numbers, it's usually the committee that's got the most people on it because people really want to be part of it. And it's got, you know, loads of Twitter followers now, which has has grown over the years. And that's because the team work really hard to make Mm. a difference and they want to do more to serve the membership. And I think that's the piece that don't be afraid to do that because Mm. you're never going to do anything that's going to be to the detriment of the members or whichever professional body you're with, but just be prepared to take action. Mm. I think it was Brad that said something, Brad Whitworth, who said something very interesting, past chairman of the IABC and the last one, who also said um, stepping up and serving, even if it's just on a a regional level or whatever, can teach you a lot about membership, about ball relations, about, you know, it's a a good way to get that kind of exposure, isn't it? It is. And, And I talk a lot about influence and leadership and confidence and all those things. And certainly being part of CIPR has really helped me develop those kind of, you know, influence, leadership, confidence skills. You know, I don't always get it right. There have been times where I've had to leave a room because I've not been able to stay in it because I've got too angry. You know, but, um, <laughs> but you learn. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about um, where, your, where your gaps are. You know, I, I touched on public affairs earlier. That, for me, is a, is a huge gap that I have in my knowledge. But I now know where to go to get that information. And that's why I love CIPR, because of the breadth that I can learn from there. It's everything from, you know, from health, from uh, public affairs to international, to internal comms, to not-for-profit. You know, there mm. is something, no matter what you're doing and no matter where your career goes, there's people there that are willing to help you. So with all that in mind then, how might the CIPR evolve in the future does it still need to I mean are you in a very good place where you are now or do you think you've talked about the volunteer body but is there more that the CIPR should be doing in general to support and uh, progress I guess the the, the PR profession Mm. there's always more you can do you know I think in the in the the 60s I've been involved I I always feel like we're still striving for for more and I think anyone that volunteers will say the same we are in in a really good place you know I'm a massive fan of the board that we have this year obviously because um, they're with me and they bring huge value to me and the membership, which I thoroughly um, respect and need. And it's having conversations with them and conversations with the council and group chairs where we're looking at how we can do more and how we can adapt to what the needs are of members. And we've introduced panels over the last kind of few years to do just that. And that is about trying to make us more agile as an organisation. And when you've existed for a long time, it's hard to be as agile as some of the the newer places. So having a panel that's focused on influencer marketing and a panel that's focused on diversity and inclusion and a panel that's focused on climate change, you know, they all bring with them specialisms that will help us support members in those areas and and that's where I see us going is that is is smaller groups being able to do more um, and actually doing more so not just you know an an event and a skills guide and a webinar which we're (laughs) traditionally quite good at getting those out but actually what are we doing and I think that's the bit that we need to reflect on as an institute Um, Mm. and I think sometimes individually you know what am I actually doing or am I just doing another report is this really helping move things forward yes and um and I think that's where the institute can do more in Mm. order to really push things further in terms of action Mm. Um, and I think being part of other bodies and, and being linked to and supporting the voices of places like the IOD and the CBI has been a huge achievement for the CIPR because the relationships there then mean we can speak for our members in places that maybe we couldn't have spoken yeah. um, before. So there's always loads to do. Um, but I think the fact we've got a good, solid five-year strategy, um, our senior management team are, are incredibly passionate about what they do. And it's just about, you know, keeping on trucking. But yes but making sure that you're um, agile enough to adapt as you go. 
I saw your Blackout Tuesday message and I saw also that you, I think you moved your awards of excellence by one day as well. So just digging in a little bit in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, but more generally, how do you feel the CIPR is responding to the issues that have been thrown up recently about diversity and inclusion? I think it's such a topical question and for me it it was important for us to make a statement as the CIPR and the team and I discussed moving excellence quite quickly when Blackout Tuesday became a thing on the Monday Um, it just didn't feel right to be celebrating something during a time of, of much needed reflection and as an institute I can't sit here and say you know we're doing an amazing job and we're doing all the right things because there's still a lot to do um And we have to be aware of our contribution to the issues in the industry. And we don't work as quickly as I would like us to work. Mm. But there are there are lots of things to consider. That's not an excuse. And I think that what's happened over the last few weeks and months will catapult action. And I think that's what needs to happen. For a long time, CIPR has been involved with the Taylor Bennett Foundation, um, both financially and in kind. And we also support the BME PR pros. So we, we do things. I'm just not sure that we do maybe enough. Mm-hmm. And certainly for me, it's it's a lot about education and education around the language that we use, the unconscious bias, the, you know, the fact that you just think, well, I'm just going to carry on because it doesn't make any difference to me who, who I work with or anything because I'm just going to keep going. But actually being conscious of that and making sure that you're making more of an effort to to shout about that and bring the voices forward and Mm. do more of those things is really important so I don't think we've done enough there's a lot more to do I think it's a lot to do with action now and I think it's a lot to do with how we can make sure that the voices that we're listening to are a good mix of diverse voices and appreciating how exhausted some of those voices are yes and that's the thing for me where I see the best intention sometimes and then I see a response from somebody where it's you know I can just I can feel that exhaustion and yes. and that is probably been my most self-reflective moment of I, I get it yeah I mean yeah. we really have been thrown I mean you know for those of us saying oh I wish I had a seat at the table might be thinking I'd quite like to step away from the table right now and take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's it's uncomfortable conversations. And I think mm. there's always that, the worry I have is that you, we could create a circle of silence where people feel too scared to say something for fear of, of not saying the right thing. Yes. You know, which is the easiest thing to do. And that's what we're trying to avoid now. But it's, you're asking people to step forward in a way that they have never done before and that might culturally be very uncomfortable um, in whatever cultural background to step forward and, and stand against hierarchy, you know, all those things. So yeah. there's a lot There's a lot in there and it's not just for, you know, the PR industry to solve. It's not just for the CIPR to solve. It's for, you know, society as a whole to, to really look at. But there's definitely more we need to do. And I'm really excited about what we will do. You know, when I look at the diversity panel that's being relaunched, when I look at the report that's that's out, there's there's lots of work that's happening. But again, it's just the words. It's where's mm. the action. And that's the bit that's really playing in my mind over and over again now is, okay, but what are we actually doing? Mm, no, I understand exactly where you're coming from on that. So here's a question for you, because I know, and you and I have had this conversation many times, Jenny, but I know that you are as fascinated, if not more fascinated by business mm-hmm. than you are comms. Mm-hmm. You're like me. It's like, let's dig into what the business problem is. Comms will, comms will solve it. Yeah. But the business problem is the fun thing, the thing we nearly, really need to understand and dig into. Do you have any reflections on how business and leadership, leaving comms aside for the moment, but how business and leadership might be impacted by this p- pandemic? Or is it simply just too early to make those kinds of pro- predictions? Oh, what a good question. I, th- I think it probably is a bit early, but I also think every industry is going to have a different experience in this. And if I look at, you know, even just the clients I've got, which vary in terms of industry from, 
you know, fitness to defense to um, to sort of pharmaceutical, their their challenges are all very different. Their ways of working in throughout the pandemic have been very different, um, and what happens next is very different. So there's all of those things to to unpick. I think leadership is going to be even more important than it ever has been, and I'm hoping that where leaders have struggled in this around leading with empathy, they will choose to do some development in those areas to really expand on that because I think that's not going to go away in terms of that human need. Um, there's definitely something around purpose and being a purposeful or purpose-led organisation and that being very clear. And, and this isn't new. This is stuff we've talked about for a long time. But being able to articulate what that purpose is, um, is going to be so important because you might have lost your way a bit over the over years. You don't know. And now's the time to relook at what that's about. And that can be quite a challenge if your business has been set up by you and if you've run that business for a long time and now all of a sudden you're unpicking maybe what you've done or you're having to look at things and be quite critical of yourself mm. that's quite challenging and and certainly with the the business owners that I'm, I'm coaching and talking to when we get to talk about pricing models <laughs> that's where the the challenging conversations are because there is this desire to well let's just ride it out you know and let's wait and see when we go back to where we were then it'll be fine. And I'm saying you you just don't know when that's going to be. And, e and even if you just change something for six months, be clear with your stakeholders, but let's let's change something. And I think it's that ability to think in, in batches of time. Yes. So years ago, we talked about having, you know, five, 10, 20 year strategies. I know someone just the other week said they've got a 20 year strategy, which terrified me uh, in the, the current climate. But I'm a big fan of 90 day sprints, I'm a, even before the pandemic. And if you have a framework, that's brilliant. That framework can stick around for years, but yeah. you have 90 day sprints that sit underneath that, which allow you to, to really focus on getting something done and then being able to maybe change direction or go in a different way or carry on. But having those check-ins every 90 days is, is perfect. Depending on the size of your business will depend how big those sprints are. Yes. 90 days is fairly standard. But if you're a smaller business, you might want to go to 30 days because yes. you can. Yes. And I think that's the bit for me is don't be afraid to, to change quickly and don't be afraid to, to try something be okay with failure and then doing something else. And that's what I think businesses will start to learn more about is being okay with failure. And I think there's some great books on that and some stuff I think you and I have both read around it where there are industries who aren't great at failure mm. and we mm. have to learn to be okay with that and, mm. and move on and dust ourselves off and change direction and go in a different way. So mm. definitely mm. going to be industry specific. And I, I think it will be really interesting to watch what happens. And I think there will be a lot of sadness about what happens about some industries that maybe don't survive some of this pandemic. And I think that will mm. be um, really horrible to watch, actually. We're going to lose some well-known brand names, I'm sure. And yeah. we already have, actually. Yeah, we have. And I think, you know, I used to work for um, a company that does food and drink in travel locations around the world. <laughs> yeah, oh dear. I, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's there's not a, there's just nothing there, is there? No one's no. travelling anywhere. No one's even on a train. And however much people will say, you know, you should have had a pandemic and a risk register, no one foresaw lockdown and the schools closing. I don't think that was ever on a risk register. And I think that's what's been the difference now is just the absolute stopping of everything that mm. you can't foresee what's going to happen. Mm. Um, so it'll be it'll be a testing time for many leaders. And I feel I feel for them. I really do. I think I wouldn't want to be leading a, a you know a FTSE business right now. No. Um, and I wouldn't want to be leading government right now because I think no matter what decision you make in that leadership role, you're it's going to be the wrong decision for a group of people and you're never going to make decisions to please everybody. And that's really hard as a human being to, it's horrible. to know that you're you're trying to do the best you can. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Know, it's tough. I mean, I actually said, I was interviewed on a podcast the other day and I actually said, and it doesn't feel like terribly strategic advice, but I said, if you're a strategic advisor to a leader at the moment, one of the most important things you can say to them is take a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if they've been doing all hands meetings every day or every week via Zoom and they're Zoomed out, yeah. they need to yeah. take a break, take a pause, take a breath, think yeah. it through. Um, yeah, I think I think that's so important. I do feel very sorry for leaders. You're absolutely and, right. And I think we're just 
We, I was talking uh, again to someone the other the other day, and, and they were saying about how the world of PR and comms is so twenty four seven now, more so now we're working at home that people are expected to do more and respond to more, and it is about boundaries. And there is a need for more coaching for for people at work that maybe haven't had that development, and it's a tough one, you know. But I've I've had to have that conversation when I was working, you know, six till seven, and mm. you know, not taking lunch, and we've all we've all been there. But you have to set the boundaries for yourself and you have to stick to them. And that's realising that nothing bad will happen if you yes. do that. And, and it's easy to be on that hamster wheel of just, just got to keep going, got to keep going. But you're right, as a leader, just stop. Mm. You know, you have to look after you. Your oxygen mask first. Yeah, know? absolutely. It's a great phrase. It's a great book. And it's it's so, so true. Just coming back to one thing, because I can't let it slip by. We talked about failure and and I've often said, so listeners will be sick of hearing it, but, you know, failure is not the opposite of success. It Mm. can be one step closer to it. Yeah. Um, But you made me read Black Box Thinking. Yeah. And it's brilliant. Matthew Syed, I think, isn't it? And that's the whole point, isn't it? How much you can learn through failure to get it right next time. Yeah. And it's it's recognising that it's not going backwards. And I think in the pandemic, there's so many conversations we've all had but I remember I was talking to people quite early on who were giving themselves a really hard time that they'd worked really hard in their it was uh, fitness related so they'd worked really hard in their fitness and now they were undoing all that work because they weren't exercising they were eating cake and you know as we all have been quite frankly um and I was saying but you're focusing on something else now you know so you can't look at that as though you're failing in terms of all the effort you've done your attention has to go in lots of different directions at different times. So Mm. you've just had to shift and now you're really progressing your business and you're doing this, which is great. So you can't look at it as failure over here because it's success over here and that will come back and it will level itself out. But it's, it's recognizing that you can't, you know, you're not going to be successful at everything all of the time. Mm, like there mm. are things that, you know, you're going to forget to do something. You'll get, you know, even little failures, they're going to happen, mm. but we're all human beings and it's okay. And I think it's just being okay with that. That's a real self-development journey to go on mm. that this is okay. It's almost sort of letting yourself off like you would let anyone else off, being sympathetic with yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and having people with you to help that conversation. I think that's hugely helpful where we can, you know, suffer from thinking we don't have all the answers or we don't know what to say. And as comms people, you're often there to give the advice. And there are times where you might not know what is the right thing to say. But having people around you to bounce an idea off or to check in and is is hugely beneficial. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, just this week I was speaking at, at an event and there was a a time you could log on early and I didn't know the person that was on there but I was having a moment of oh I'm kind of going down this route for my talk I'm just going to check in and we had a really nice conversation she didn't know me I didn't know her but it was lovely to have that debate with somebody to to just make sure my thinking was right yes. and I wasn't going to fail um and that's being okay with being vulnerable as well and I'm a huge Brene Brown fan as I know you know you yes. are and um and it's it's being okay to to do that and I think you're only going to fail if you're going to be vulnerable to have the courage to try something different. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She said something brilliant in a podcast with Tim Ferriss. We'll put a a link to it. Um, But sort of he said to her, how do you get people to face up to to those weaknesses and things that they need to address, to open up Pandora's box and really look inside and analyze themselves of the things they really need to fix? Mm. How do you get them to do that? And she said, they're living inside Pandora's box. You're already in there. You know, there's nothing you're suddenly waking up and fixing. You're stuck in that world if you never focus on those things. Yeah. So that being vulnerable with yourself, uh, you've almost got nothing to lose because yeah. you're walking around with all that baggage or uncertainty or all those things you want to fix, whether you like it or not. Yeah, she's so right. And I, I remember years ago having a coaching session and the guy said, you know, you nothing great comes from being in your comfort zone, <laughs> and it, and it stayed with me forever. And he and I remember it was in a room, so he kind of you know physically moved out of the comfort zone, and it was a really good physical representation of what we need to do because it's easy to stay in here and and just you know keep doing something and not challenging stuff or oh, I won't try that just in case I fail. You know, you're never going to 
change the world. You're never going to do the things that you really want to do if you're always worried about failure. Mm, it's, um, mm. it's just taking the leap. And having people around you to catch you, that's the, yes. that's the thing. In researching for this interview, I did read a few blogs and posts on LinkedIn, etc. that you've been writing. One of the things you talked about is that we might be in danger of getting a little bit trapped in some tactical activities during this crisis. And now is very much the time for us to demonstrate our strategic capabilities, really step up and advise leaders. Um, do you have any specific advice to IC folk now who, who aspire to being those strategic advisors? Um, how do they get there, I suppose is the question. Yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? Because when you've when you're working and you're doing a lot of channel-based work, it, you can feel like you're really stuck just doing a lot of the tactical stuff. And, and quite often you are when you're doing that. That's how I started internal comms, was doing intranets, magazines and events and all those things. The, the way that shifted for me was when I was then starting to have conversations about what what should shape the agenda of that event or what should we look at in terms of what's the right tool to engage those people. So it's questioning actually the decisions that maybe you've made or others have made without accusing. It's a very big difference. <laughs> so if you can enable conversations where you can question and be curious about why things are the way they are without accusing somebody of doing something rubbish, then you start to put yourself in a conversation that's going to be more strategic. And, and that's the, the way I would go. And there is a lot to be said for being strategic with the tactical. Mm -hmm. So I still remember being at a group event a, a while ago now and talking about the fact that I had a week, a monthly newsletter that was going out and it was, you know, just going out to everybody. And this woman looked at me in horror at my slapdash approach to this <laughs> newsletter. And this was only about four years ago, so it wasn't very early in my career. And I did say, you know, there is a strategy behind the newsletter in terms of, you know, the structure of it, the content that it lines to the strategy, you know, the, the way we've done it. You know, there's, we, I've thought about this. I'm not just smashing something together on the back <laughs> of a cigarette packet and sending it out. Um, so be strategic with the tactical. And I think having those conversations will really help you. So if you're doing a newsletter and you might be doing something now that's specific to COVID-19, how do you take that and move that forward as another channel and have that conversation that says, look, you know, we're using this channel. We introduced it during covid I think this is a great channel to keep, but I think we need to change the content and bring stuff about our strategy in. So I'm going to, going to make that change. There's also a shift in my language there of, I've looked at this, I've decided this, I'm going to make that change. I'm not asking for permission. Mm. And that's a shift of, you know, taking a deep breath and I'm going to do this. You're, you're putting yourself in a position of leadership there. That's not to say this isn't a discussion, but you've made that decision. Yes. And I think there is a, a, a subtle shift you can start to do now that will allow you to do that because people are very busy. You know, people are very busy, focused on lots of maybe different things. So use that opportunity to, to make the decisions that you want to make. Mm. You can always ask for forgiveness. You can always change something you've done. If it doesn't go well, you can undo it. It'll be mm. fine. Mm. But it's using that opportunity to make those decisions and, and feeling comfortable making decisions to be accountable. Mm. Um, those are the bits of of advice yeah no very good advice and as you say said earlier it's about being part of the solution isn't it not just raising our flag and saying this isn't working yeah but saying I've noticed it's not working I think it's for this reason and I think there's two solutions I've weighed them up and it's definitely yes. been not a you know yes exactly and exactly. if I'm wrong I'll come back and yeah. <laughs> but it's being comfortable with that accountability and that's something I've been reading quite a lot about around our our inability to be comfortable with accountability and if you want to step up into that strategic advisor role, if you want to step up into a leadership role, you do have to be accountable for the decisions that you're going to make. Um, mm. And that's just something you have to be comfortable doing. And that isn't for everybody, you know, and that's okay. I've worked with people who have said to me, I never want your job. <laughs> I never want to do what you do. I love writing content, working with the channels we've got. And I love doing that brilliantly. And they are the best people for me because they're about the detail, they're copywriters. You know, we you need every different skill set in comms. Mm, so if mm. it's not for you, also don't don't beat yourself up that it's not for you. I think sometimes we can think everybody needs to be up at strategic advisor level, whereas it isn't for everybody. And mm. that's totally fine. Mm, absolutely. We all need great, powerful storytellers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
So I read uh, another blog that you wrote about this crisis where, and I just want to dig into this because I'm obviously running an agency quite fascinated by this question. Um, and you were talking about discretionary spend. I think <laughs> yeah. this is right. Yeah, it is. And that yeah. the, the nature of discretionary spend might change. And I was thinking, oh, is this a good thing or a bad thing? As we project forward uh, our forecast for the next 12 months. Yeah, well, yeah. talk me through your thoughts so on that. I wrote this quite early on in the pandemic and I sent it to some comms friends and they went it's too soon Jenny <laughs> give it a couple of weeks and then that'll be okay but it was it was on the back of a conversation with a client who said you know we need to cut all our discretionary spend now I was coming to the end of my work so I was, <laughs> I was all right with that conversation but it made me think I'm not sure this is discretionary anymore yeah and you're saving a load on travel which you didn't necessarily see as discretionary before so how is this discretionary when your business is going to live or die by your ability to communicate with your team now that they're all over the place. So that's where it came from, because I thought we've spent years being the victims of discretionary spend. Yes. Um, And will that change after the the pandemic? I don't know, but I would really challenge organisations to think about what they have always thought of as something that's discretionary, because... I never thought I would be seeing adverts on mainstream television for Microsoft Teams. Um, You know, I never thought that I would be working at home for this amount of time Mm. with my husband, you know, not going anywhere. And I think the world is very different. And I think if we don't look at at the the spending, the actually what's important for us to operate now as a business, when we look at the costs that we need, if we don't need a building, we're going to need to invest in some other kind of infrastructure. And, And it's those things that I think need to change. And as we look at this return to site that's starting to happen, saying to someone the other week, the thing is, is this is going to go back to how it was in some ways, right? We used, at the moment, we're all working at home. So this is quite easy. I say that in quote marks because we're all in the same places. So my ability to communicate with people is is fine. We've got Teams, Zoom, lots of different options, but we're all got the same ability to connect in the most part. Years ago, months ago, <laughs> when we were in an office, you would have a spider phone conference call that you'd have to pass around a desk. Absolutely. Because, you know, Carol was at the end of the line somewhere else. Or you might have a screen that connects and the camera whizzes round, but it never quite works. And then you can't see someone and they can't see you. And, you know, this was never seamless before. No. So if we don't invest in that kind of infrastructure as well, this isn't going to work because those that's my worry is as soon as you start to return to site, mm. all of those same issues of passing that spider phone around are going to come back and investing not only in the technology to communicate, but in line manager skills, empathy, all of those things that have come to the fore in conversations during the pandemic just can't be discretionary anymore mm. because we've remembered that we're human beings. And that's something that I think organisations lost a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. It's funny, actually, because I had to I had to write a script for a film we wanted to make at AB. And the first line of it was, it's always been you. But we felt that, you know, we've been around for 65 years, not quite that long, actually. <laughs> 1964. So yeah, 55 years, 56 years. And it, we've always been about celebrating frontline and telling frontline stories and celebrating the kind of, you know, um, the passion and the enthusiasm of the frontline. But all of a sudden, the world's doing that. You know, the yeah. public is interested, as you say, in how organisations are treating, you know, we're thinking of the frontline as a lifeline, not just in the NHS, but the yeah. people that are emptying the bins, the people that are showing up to work, you know, in our grocery stores. You know, is that here to stay, that interest that we might have, as you say, in how people are treating their own staff? Yeah, I think it will. And I think it's remembering and having the time. So it's remembering the people and it's having the time. And I was listening to, you know, probably one of Brene's podcasts this week about the when you say to somebody, oh, how are you? Um, You actually do mean it now. And that was said quite a lot earlier on in the pandemic. But if you think about how we used to rush around and, you know, the the way you'd, you know, beep at somebody if you were stuck at a traffic light and they didn't go, or you'd rush into your supermarket, get your staff, go, you know, whereas now, you know, I'm saying thank you to the security guard as I walk into the, yes. <laughs> into the supermarket and I maybe chat to people in the queue about, you know, the weather or just nonsense. Or if I'm out for a walk, you might stop and say hello. And that's, that's something we, we hadn't done for a long time. And I mm. think our, 
recognition of our local world and our recognition of other people has just been heightened throughout the mm. pandemic. And I hope it is here to stay. I don't think um, it's we're going to suddenly become, you know, running around in fields and no. you know having a really lovely time and no, we... <laughs> not going to work so much and having nice balance. I think, you know, those of us that have been working throughout the pandemic, it's been full on. It has been, uh, yeah. So it, it ha- it's not going to change to that degree. But I definitely, I definitely think we care more about how people are treated than I think maybe we thought about before. Yes. And maybe it's just more visible now as well. I do think that you can't hide anymore. You know, if you've, yeah. you're not treating people well or you're not being fair with your employees, that's going to be, it's more apparent when you're working remote because you are in some ways more siloed anyway. So. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen the rise of employee activism, yeah. people calling it out, you know, yeah. not in my name, you're not doing that. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's great because we're starting to realize what we stand for as individuals and you know we have such consumerism in this in this world and such a pace and you know I can download a series and watch it in a day you know not not guilty <laughs> but you know we, we have such instant instant world now whereas I think that slower pace and that considered look at actually I don't want to do that or I've now decided I want to learn how to do this we've had time to think about what we want to do as individuals and I think that will be interesting as we return to some mm. things going back because what's important to me now was important to me before but I've now been able to have time to recognize that importance so there will be a shift for me personally around where I choose to spend my time and yeah. who I choose to give that time to and and where that that sits and I think all individuals will be feeling that and I wonder how that will manifest as time goes on I mean I'm interested in those employees whose bosses were kind of you know they used to believe in sort of presenteeism you had to be there yeah and so they didn't get the flexibility that they might have liked um now obviously that whole idea that whole notion's been blown out of the water but what happens on the return to work because if you've if you've got those old-fashioned attitudes then you're not going to retain your staff long term once we come out of a recession certainly no and i i don't think you can now i think it's gone on so long that i think the I think the going back to how it was before in terms of the nine to five, I just can't see happening. I really mm. can't. I think if this had been a lockdown for a couple of weeks, yes. Mm. But it's been 10, 11 weeks now. Mm. And it's it feels very normal now in terms of what we're doing and how we're going about our work. And I don't think people would accept it either. And I think mm. they'd feel quite strongly to say, I don't, I, I can't do that or I don't want to do that. And from an environmental perspective, yes. there's been so much reports of the impact of us not, you know, being on planes, trains, driving yes. everywhere, that I think people are thinking differently about that because now you've seen the impact. So there's, there's lots of things that will be going on for people. Mm. Um, and I think the thing I've found is how interconnected everything is that you don't really think about. And I, I, I think that's what's really been demonstrated by this is the knock-on effect of that everything has to everything else in order for our society to function. Mm. Um, and I think mm. we'll just, just need a bit of reflection around what's, what's the right thing to do. And as a leader, I think you'd really struggle to say the right thing to do is for us all to come back in the office, nine to five, Monday to Friday, because there's no proof that that is actually the right thing to do. And as we always say, decisions should be made on data and insight. Mm. I think the last 11 weeks will tell you that people have done very well mm. in in a global pandemic where they've had to homeschool children, yes. you know, work, you know, care for people, whatever might be going on. I don't think you have a case. You're no, <laughs> no, no. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. But I guess your your point earlier is really important. We mustn't create kind of us and them cultures where there are people that are that have to go back to work for whatever reason. Uh, and weirdly, as we know, just as you say, don't have the technology yeah. that we have at home because unfortunately, as we know, technology at work often disappoints us. Yes, yeah. And I don't know, I also don't know what the need is. Everyone I'm talking to that's working at home um, and that's working from home and are able to work at home. They're not having to juggle um, for a variety of reasons. They've kind of got enough care around them to do that. They are saying they are just loving it in right. terms of, you know, I don't have to commute. I've got, you know, this, I've got this screen for this, this screen for this. You know, I didn't realise how much time I was losing by travelling. Mm. Um, there's just, there's lots of things to consider. But 
we talked earlier before we came on the podcast about that there are some things that still do need to be face to face like if I want to have a strategy session with some of my team I, I do want to do that in person and I think those are the things that we just have to think about that it's about balance yes I think we will move to more remote but I think it will be more considered time together yes absolutely which would be no bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea. We're already talking about that at EB, is when we do get together, there'll be a real purpose behind yeah. it. And, and it will be very intentional and we'll enjoy that time together. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, fantastic. I can't wait for it personally. But uh, yeah, <laughs> oh my goodness, especially if it involves a glass of wine. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I can't not ask you this question, Jenny. You are writing a book. <laughs> for my sins. <laughs> Are you able to share anything about it with us? Um, yeah, I can. Yeah. It's not all cloaked in secrecy. No, I can't talk about the... T- everyone always says, what's the title? And that's the thing you can't you can't talk about. Um, and I've been sharing quotes as I've been writing over lockdown of, of things, partly to check whether I'm talking nonsense, <laughs> but also as a way of just helping me, me keep accountable, really. But the book is about my model, which is how to take an organisation from chaos to calm. And uh, that's a three-step model, which is around understanding, diagnosing and fixing what's going on. So the book talks about understanding people, understanding organisations. But what's important to me is that it, it brings in different aspects from all the different books and things I've read and my experiences. But it's looking at that diagnosis piece, because so often we will see a problem and then we'll fix it and we won't really diagnose what's going on. And I've seen it I've probably done it in my career and it's a bit like I use the medical analogy for it around you have a headache you take a painkiller but the headache cause could be stress whereas you might treat it differently than having a painkiller so it's just making sure that your treatment is right for the cause so that's what the book's about and and to try and help people that work in communications or business leaders um, have some practical advice in terms of how to do that so it looks at lots of different elements to the model and you should be able to read it and go, okay, right, I could do this. And that's the idea, really. Excellent. And is there a, a, a date when it has to be ready? Is there? A- uh, so it's it's 90% gone to my publishers already. Wow. So I've got a, a couple of chapters just to finish off. And then it's due out in April next year. So it's pushed a bit with the pandemic, but um, April next year. So I'm really excited about it. It was, um, it's just nice to get everything out of my head onto paper, really, which has been bubbling around for a 16 years. Do you have a certain kind of routine when it comes to writing? Are you great in the mornings or are you good at night? <laughs> um, just generally quite chaotic. Um, I took a week off actually to really blitz it because I needed some focus time and I was doing little bits here and there. But when we got, went into lockdown, I really struggled mentally with flitting between tasks. I had mm. a good two, three weeks where I was having to focus on one thing a day whereas before I could jump around all over the place. So I ended up blocking out sort of, you know, really good chunks of time. Um, So no, there hasn't been anything specific. It's just uh, lots of scribbles, notebooks of different ideas and and stuff like that. And then going off to research stuff as you start writing and think, oh, I need to go and read more about this. And I know you said you did when you wrote yours. So um, so there's definitely been been bits and pieces of that. And I'm, I'm really excited about doing it. I've already written the overview for my next book that I want to write. Oh, that's so very impressive. There's a, another load of thoughts bubbling away for that one. So I'm going to look at that probably end of this year to see whether there's something in that Excellent. one. Excellent. Excellent. We look forward to it. Thank you. Before we get to those quick fire, new quick fire questions, I thought it was important because I know how curious you are about all things comms and business. Is there anything at the moment that's particularly sort of piqued your interest? Oh, gosh, there's probably too many things that have um, piqued my interest. There's a couple of things that have bubbled around probably about the last week or so around what's actually changed for the communications industry. And I think that's a really good question. That came from a a discussion I was having with Mike Klein where we were just saying, what's really going to be different? And I think when you really think about that, I'm not sure what the answer is yet. Mm -hmm. So that's piqued my interest a bit. And on the back of all of the focus around Black Lives Matter movement, the the concept of a kind of a bias chain, which I've been chatting about to some people of this, uh, we talk about an echo chamber quite a lot, so we talk to ourselves, but there's something for me bubbling around around this 
if I read some content from somebody and then I share that content with somebody else, I'm passing on their bias to another person. Likewise, if someone comes to me and says, who would you recommend to speak? I will tell you who to speak based on the people that I know, not based on you doing your own research to find the right people based on that topic. So I'm then unconsciously passing my bias over. So I find that quite interesting because I think that's trying to use your networks in a way that's quite different to how we've used them before. So I'm quite Mm. keen to have a look and see whether that's playing a role in the fact that we do have this sort of echo chamber problem in some Mm. ways. I mean, the trouble is that our networks, our social networks, are algorithmed to play back. Yeah. As we know, every time I open Facebook, and I know exactly why those advertisers are advertising to me, because of what I clicked on last night. Um, So we are, we're trapped in an echo chamber unless we deliberately step outside them. But that's got to be a very conscious and deliberate effort. And, And that's the thing I think that we have to do. So I have followed a lot of different people and... And for me, it's also recognising my own laziness. You know, I can, it's really easy for me to go and read a blog that someone's written because they've done all the research for me. So I can just read what they've done. Mm. But again, I'm taking their their bias around their interpretation of what they've read and, and taking that as truth. Mm. And I want to hear from more diverse voices. And I think it's it's fascinating for me that in the world of Twitter and social media, there's people that we know very well that other people that aren't on social media haven't have never heard of. Right. And I think we sometimes get too focused in on this sort of microclimate when actually there is a whole world out there and there's a lot more going on than mm. just our little bubbles and worlds. So mm. lots of self-reflection. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. Right, so those new quick-fire questions. Uh, we might get some overlap here, but that's fine. So what are you reading and or listening to at the moment? Oh, so I'm reading a book called Focus at the moment, and I am listening to um, Unlocking Us, which is Brene Brown's podcast. Right, right. Both, so both. both recommended, would you say? Yes, the Focus book's quite good. It's similar to some other stuff, but there's some really nice takeaways in there. So yeah, definitely Brene Brown's podcast on grief, which I think is the third episode, is really good. Oh, really? We will put the links to that in the show notes, everyone. So you can have three people, alive or dead. This is not an original question. I apologise, but it's so interesting. You can have any three people, alive or dead, over for dinner. Who would they be? Oh, gosh. I didn't read these before we did this. I feel like I wish I had now. No, I love it. It's quick fire. It should be. So I would have Michelle Obama. I would have... Oh, who else? I would have Brene Brown because I clearly love her. And I'd probably have Simon Sinek, actually. <gasps> oh, my I mean, goodness. What a dinner party. <laughs> I'd be really giddy in there um, because they are people that I just could listen to and learn from, you know, hugely and would just really value some good conversations with all of them. I wonder if they know each other. Well, maybe we'll find out. Let's invite them to dinner and see if they come. <laughs> Michelle Obama says, well, Barack Obama follows Rachel Miller. Really? She said that on a, one of the last podcasts. So maybe we could find out something. Maybe. The maybe they're really, you know, best friends. <laughs> <laughs> so you are allowed one superpower, any superpower, but what would it be? Oh, See, I always like the superheroes that have a mix of superpowers. Oh. I'm greedy. Um, I think it would be, oh, to be able to fly, I think. That was Rachel's answer. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> well, we are really good friends. So <laughs> we just see us zipping about the skies together. <laughs> yeah, that would be it, I think. Is there anywhere in particular you'd go? Or is it no, just the I fun of it? I think it's just the fun of it. I think I just have a really nice time just <laughs> whipping about and not, not having a care in the world. <laughs> we will have you in your cape yeah. the, uh, for the assets for this show. That's true. I love that. What's the best gift? And it doesn't have to be an expensive one. What's the best gift you've ever received? Gosh, gosh what a question. Um it's going to have to be a gift that my husband got me for Christmas a few years ago, which is a painting done by Neil Buchanan, who used to do Art Attack. He's got some less Art Attack-esque art. And it's a painting of a lady who's holding a wine glass with her back to the canvas. And I loved it. And he surprised me. It's got a personalised note from Neil in it saying, oh, wow. you know, and I just love it. And it's in our hallway and at the top of the stairs. So I see it every day and I just always makes me smile. 
tweet it to us. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. (laughs) And finally, I have to do this to you, just in case you never actually get invited on Desert Island Disc. Okay. You you may well do. Uh, For listeners that don't don't know, this is a show that's played out on Radio 4 since 1942. but basically, you're you, they yes, you're allowed some discs to take on a desert island, and right at the end, you get asked this question. So you are now stranded on that desert island. You are given the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible, but you have some choices to make. You're allowed to take one of your records. They say discs. Okay. That's how. That's how uh, long ago this show came first came out. So you're allowed to take one of your records, one book, and a luxury. So what are you going to take to your desert island? So the music would be um, Pink's album, Beautiful Trauma, because I love her. Um, Oh, she might be my dinner party guest too. I can't have another (laughs) one. No, okay, I'll stop. Um, So it would be that. My book would be, gosh, my book would, would, oh, I'm so boring. My book would probably be... um, a business book because that's all I seem to read. Uh, but it would probably be actually no, it wouldn't. It would be uh, one for over the cookies nest, which I think is brilliant, um, albeit quite dark. And my luxury, I want a desert island, so I can't have chocolate because that would melt. That would be silly. <laughs> um, so my luxury, can it be a practical luxury? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I might get like a spear so I could fish so that I could yeah. survive. There we go. That would be my luxury. Perfect. Item. Functional. Slightly practical. <laughs> Thinking about my own ability to survive. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to sit there with some warm wine <laughs> and a nice book. <laughs> Jenny, it's been an absolute delight again to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming over, sitting at a safe distance and having a conversation in person with me. I know, it's been lovely. Thank you very much for having me. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Jenny and I talked about, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk and you'll find the podcast section there. And while you're on our site, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. We've been giving this newsletter a little bit of extra love and attention during this pandemic. It's where you'll find links to the latest reports, free resources, general updates on communications, as well as the latest on the Internal Comms podcast. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, please give us a shout out on social media. You might even like to to blog about it. And there is a way that you can help make us more discoverable for other IC pros out there. I'm told the very best way of doing this is to simply rate the show on iTunes. If you can do that, I'd be immensely grateful. We have one final episode left of this season and it's a cracker. I can't wait to bring you it. It is a conversation with Roger Dupree. Now, if Roger didn't invent the concept of internal comms, he got pretty close. He's the author of 10 books and been given a Lifetime Achievement Award for his services to internal communication. And basically is the person that all the people that I admire in comms admire. So I can't wait to bring you this show. You might want to hit the subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. Until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, as ever, it's what's inside that counts.